Chapter Eighteen of From Mud to Mufti by Bruce Barron's Father. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Eighteen: Sick Leave, Summoned to War Office, Amazing Interview, A Unique Job. In due course, I was better, and after going before a medical board, I was given sick leave. I then went home and wondered about the future. It was goodbye, Montrelet. I knew that, but what would be my next job? Back in the old apple and plum, I supposed. I spent two weeks amongst the leafy calm of Warwickshire, getting better every day. In a few days now I should have my final medical board and then report at the headquarters of my battalion reserve depot. The days slid on and I was just about to go through the above formula when the blow fell or the squib exploded or whatever you like to call it. I awoke one morning to find, amongst other letters, a long envelope with OHMS on the cover. I was summoned to London to the War Office. Now, my feeling about the War Office is almost identical with that one has at school when you are requested to visit the headmaster's study after prep, with a view to being caned. I don't know why, but perhaps it's that wonderful and unique chill which one associates with long, unfurnished stone corridors. The War Office is well worth a visit to those who haven't been there. A vast pile with an intricate labyrinth of long, dull-colored corridors, one almost expects to find the mummied corpse of a king when one gets to the center, something like entering the Great Pyramid at Giza. You feel that somewhere in the middle there must be some vast and highly colored potentate, maybe a super-general, who is, perhaps, dead in a sarcophagus, or alive like a queen bee. But anyway, guarded by a host of officials, minor satellites, and girl guides. You, of course, never get near or see this personage. You merely feel the gloom and awe which his presence creates. I haven't been to the war office very often, but I've never lost this sensation. You enter the building and fill up a form. In time, you are boisterously told by a Boer War veteran to follow the girl. The girl, a guide of sorts in a dark brown engineer's overall, sets off sullenly down a cement passage with a group of assorted officers pursuing. She, I fancy, revels in the intricacies of these stone catacombs. Having apparently described a complete parallelogram by means of walking round the edifice in a forbidding-looking corridor, you suddenly come upon a lift. It is always disappearing upwards when you arrive, so the whole group silently waits for its return. It comes down suddenly and disgorges an assorted crowd. When, headed up by the girl guide, you enter and are taken up. Now we all repeat the corridors and parallelogram business again. This time you have to abandon trying to realize where you are. Nothing but the girl guide can save you now. Lost in the war office. How awful that would be. I can imagine a visitor having lagged behind the guide a bit, suddenly realizing that he was lost. How he would vainly beat on those stone walls and scream for help how his skeleton would be found by a typist weeks later in an attitude which evidently showed that he had succumbed while endeavoring to gnaw his way through a door. I followed the guide and after being handed to several officials who take you to other officials, at last came up with the official, whose duty it was to prevent if possible anyone seeing the officer who had summoned me by letter from my rural retreat. The official took my paper form and reverently asked me to wait a minute. He then disappeared through a door ten feet high and five feet wide and closed it behind him. 
I now sat on a chair and idly listened to the suburban gossip of a couple of typists which floated out from behind a couple of screens. Have you been to Chu Chin Chow, dear? No, darling. I was going, but something happened. I don't know what. Harold told me he had seen you there. A rattling burst of typewriting indicates that another monstrous door has opened down the passage and a staff officer has come out. He passes the typists and me, carrying an armful of buff-colored papers, then all is still again. My door opens. The official comes out. He beckons me in. I go in. I am in. I hear the ponderous door close softly behind. I am face to face with the occupants of the room. The interview was brief but to the point. I was complimented on the effect of my pictures. I was told that the war office would not only like me to continue as I pleased with my ordinary cartoons, but that I was to be placed in the intelligence department, to be used pictorially for certain work which they wanted done. They then hinted that in the near future they might require me to visit the French and Italian armies and to produce similar work to that which, during many months, had grown out of the mud, as it were, on the British front. I was told of certain work to get on with immediately and initiated into a lot of details dealing with the intelligence department. I left the war office as an official and fully licensed humorous cartoonist and have continued in that capacity up to the end of the war. I left Whitehall and nearly ran down the street outside. I was so bucked. I went into the old ship, a restaurant which you will find nearly opposite Cox's Bank. Here with a cup of coffee and a gold flake I sat and thought it all over. I looked back at the start of it all, back into those dank, dark days of early 1914 when I, as a very poor and submerged second lieutenant, slushed around the Messines mud and at night drew my first sketches by the light of a candle end stuck on an empty tin, keeping myself warm by the heat of a fire bucket. From that to this, I thought and I smiled with sadness as I recollected the various ups and downs and trials of those early days. Here I was, now attached to the intelligence department of the war office. The war office liked my drawings. Overcome with pride, I paid my bill and went across the road to draw as much as I could out of that one pound nineteen and eleven pence that still remained to my credit at Cox's. End of section 18. Recording by Philip Gould.